When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hello and welcome to Dummy, a twice-weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler magazine. My name is George Qureshi. I am the editor of Howler. Joining me in my tiny little studio in Miami is the only member of this podcast who, to date, has scored for Arsenal. He now works as a scout for the Gunners, Danny Carbassian. Hi, Danny. How's it going, George? Pretty well. Joining us from Bristol, England, not Connecticut, is the author of The Ball is Around and Poochie Ball Nation, two amazing books about soccer, David Goldblatt. Hi, David. Good evening. Okay. Man, we have a great show today because we get to talk about two of my favorite things. The U.S. national team advancing in a World Cup and Luis Suarez. We'll hear from Alexander Avnos, a Howler editor, who separate from that is working this summer as a writer for USsoccer.com. He's sending us updates from the camp. uh, And he joined us just hours after the Germany game for today's update. After that, we will talk about a major milestone in this World Cup, the end of the group stage 
we'll look back at some of the most memorable moments from the opening part of this tournament and ahead to where it gets really serious in the knockout rounds. We'll also be joined by Shireen Ahmed. Shireen is a contributor for Muslim Women's Sports, and she runs the website Footy Bedsheets, probably the best-named website of any soccer website. Ramadan starts on Saturday, and we'll talk to her about what that means for the two African teams left in the tournament, Algeria and France. So, a lot to get to, but Howler is an American soccer magazine, so there's only one thing we can start with, and that is USA-Germany. Man, okay, David, I know you were giving a keynote speech, a very important keynote speech in England today. You, you are one of the U.S. team's biggest boosters, but <laughs> since you saw sort of a fragmented version of that game, I'm going to start with Danny. Danny, we lost this game... But uh, it felt like a tie, a good tie. It did, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we're through, which is the the big bonus, basically, out of it. We uh, we did took care of business in the first two games as we we wanted to do, and then we went into this game, you know, with a really good chance of going through, even if we did lose, which we did today. Um, I thought, you know, based off the first two two American games, we had a lot of joy going down the right hand side with Fabian Johnson and. I thought Jurgen Klinsmann did a really good job tactically uh, to change things for, for both games, even when Josie Altidore went out. Um, today, we, we definitely played the best team of the group, and, and Germany kind of showed it from the start. I think the first 20 minutes I looked at the screen and was wondering if we'd even had any possession at all because the Germans were so good at keeping the ball. Um, I thought what the Germans did really well off the bat was get their, uh, their fullbacks forward, and to us that kind of hurt us because... We weren't able to, first of all, we weren't able to retain possession at all in the start. Uh, and one of our major game plans in the first two games was getting Fabian Johnson to bomb up the right-hand side and create all sorts of problems on a counter. Well, when you don't have the ball, you can't bomb up the right-hand side. So well, you can, but it's just really ill-advised. Exactly. It's, it's very ill-advised. Um, and I thought Jerome Boateng did, you know, it's, it's crazy because Germany are actually playing with four center backs right now at the back in their, in their uh, 4-5-1, which I think might actually be a problem further down the line because they might get exposed eventually mm-hmm. with uh, quicker guys that can, that can play down the flanks. But Jerome Boateng got up the, got up the right-hand side really well. Lucas Podolski was even getting up the left um, and putting dangerous crosses into the box. And I just thought we it was difficult for us to settle um, initially. And their midfield are, are fantastic, and they're able to keep the ball and, and turn defense into a, into attack really quickly. So it took a little bit for us to settle. So one thing that struck me about this lineup, the, the, you know, Klinsman, I think, has done a pretty good job with the players available to him. One thing that struck me is that, you know, we, we could have, I could have told any, you know, a five-year-old could have told you that the U.S. would not have the majority of possession in this game. And yet we didn't set up a team that was really capable of playing on the counterattack. Uh, Brad Davis on the left, Graham Zussi on the right, not our speediest attackers. Uh, a lot, of, Like you said, a lot of the attack comes from the fullbacks who were pinned back for most of the game. Uh, and then, you know, Clint Dempsey up top, who I, I would guarantee you Klinsman has told the team not to play a bunch of long balls into him because just the chances, you know, A, it's not really his game. B, the chances of him getting sort of smashed in the face with an elbow when he goes up for one of those is really high, and we all know he has a broken nose. So I, I didn't really understand what the game plan was. Uh, we, we also saw Michael Bradley playing a really advanced position again, at times the most advanced player on the field for the U.S., and I think that we can all agree that that is not his best position uh, based on the three games we've seen him play in the World Cup. What Did you discern any sort of coherent game plan from this? Like, what's going on? Brad Davis on the left, Zussi on the right. You know, Beckerman and, and Jones holding, which I think, 
again, we can all agree is a good idea. <laughs> They've played very well. But what else is going on here? I think uh, from the U.S. point of view, it was just have guys kind of flood the flood the middle of the pitch and hope, kind of hope for the best. And I know it's not just hope for the best, but yeah, if you did look at the game, there wasn't much of a much of a game plan. I think we were very reactive this game as opposed to being quite proactive in the previous games where we were kind of able to, as I said, dictate play kind of down that. And when I keep mentioning Fabian Johnson is because that's where most of our joy came out of from the first two games. Um, today, us unable to get that joy, Michael Bradley kind of pushing up high. And another Another, I think, reason that the Germans uh, had so much joy today was the fact that their their midfielders are able to do small things technically just much better than the Americans are. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Germany's one of the best teams in the world. You saw that and with first touches a lot, I think. A lot of the first touches, yeah. And what, what the Germans are really good at doing is they'll receive the ball on their on their front foot. So when, when, when we were attacking and their defense won the ball, their, the first pass would be into an Ozil or a Cruz or... Um, <laughs> just your, your, your just typical your standard issue midfielders, yeah, exactly. Right. Schweinsteiger, all these guys, he filled in, um, and their first touch is on their on their front foot, so they're already turned. They let the ball roll across their body, and they're already turned. And that next pass is another entrance pass into another more advanced guy, so they're already on the break. And I thought today in particular, we we struggled with that a little bit. I thought Michael Bradley at times he, he'd get the ball, it would be a sluggish touch, and then we get caught out, and then Germany would have the ball again. I thought Jermaine Jones did a good job of. When he does get the ball, even if he's under pressure, he'll get his body in the way and then win a foul. So at least we we still retain possession to that extent. Mm-hmm. But the Germans are just so good at quickly transitioning. When they when they lose the ball or when they win the ball back, they they just quickly transition. And the next pass is into the the opposition third, and they're attacking again. And I thought our defense had a, had the the trickiest game today because of all the movement of the attackers as well as uh, as as well as Mueller, who was up there playing as a false nine again today. So. Klinsman made another change with with the central defense. This is now the third setup we've seen in this tournament. You know, the first was through injury, Brooks coming on, but uh, he took out Jeff Cameron and put in Omar Gonzalez. I thought after the first uh, sort of whiff that Omar had that was sort of very dangerously close to an own goal in our own six-yard box, uh, he actually played really well. Do you think that that was a tactical maneuver? I mean, did he anticipate a lot of balls coming in that, that Omar could win in the air? Or or is is Cameron being punished for the mistake he made that gave away the first goal to, to Ghana? Or is there something else that I'm maybe not even considering? Here? Uh, you know, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe he's punishing Jeff Cameron because, I mean, Jeff was, I suppose you could say, directly at fault for the two goals um, against Portugal. Throwing Omar Gonzalez in into the third and final group stage as your full World Cup debut uh, from the start is is pretty gutsy from Klinsman, I thought, and and Omar was quite shaky from the start, you know, that first clearance. Um, I found it kind of interesting, maybe Klinsman thought that Closa would start, so there would be a, a pretty big aerial threat, um, as opposed to Mueller, who, as you saw, drifted quite wide at times and um, gave our center backs problems, because when you do play a false nine, Mueller would go out wide, and, and Taylor Twoman pointed out even, he said... Uh, see, this is what happens when you play a false nine. Uh, Mueller's out wide, and then there's nobody in the box. And then Mueller beats his man and puts a ball into Ozil, who has a chance on goal because they have so many attacking guys in the box. So that was kind of funny to hear Twelman like kind of criticize the false nine and then say, "Well, there's Ozil right there." Um, <laughs> he, I, I think, I think Omar. It, it's a good game to play Omar because once again, it is. I mean, this was the toughest. I think the toughest game that the U.S. would have played. Um, I, I, moving forward, I'm not sure whether he goes back to Jeff Cameron 
or or leaves Omar in there. The next game against Belgium will be another very difficult test. I think uh, today Romelu Lukaku, I don't think he started. Um, he'll likely come back into the lineup. He hasn't had the best of World Cups, but he'll he'll likely come back. He's a huge aerial threat, um, and we'll have to be prepared for that. So, David, there are three players right now with four goals in the World Cup. Uh, Messi, Neymar, and Thomas Mueller. One of those is not like the others. Have you ever seen a great goal scorer who's as boring? I mean, just as Cl- I mean, he's very—he just shows up in the right place, but he doesn't score these highlight reel goals like the other two. No, but you know, given the uh, number of goals that England managed to score, it would be pretty good to have that dude up front. I think we could probably accommodate him. One can be uh, occasionally instrumental about these things. We can't all do beauty. Um, you know, and it's also just more of a, it's just, it is more of a team effort, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but the Germans are really playing like a team. And, you know, particularly Brazil, I think, are very heavily relying on Neymar to give them something a little bit different. Um, and, uh, that's why I think Germany looks so, so good because they really are playing, you know, it's an 11 person team. Okay. So I, I want to leave it there. We will have a preview of the next US game, which is on Tuesday in the next podcast because we'll be recording that on Monday night. So we're going to head off to Alexander Abnos who is sending in his report from Recife. Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Alex Adnos coming to you from the Arena Pernambuco Media Center. Uh, I just got down after talking to some players and some coaches after the U.S. uh, lost to Germany 1-0. However, it's about as good of a loss as they could hope for. It puts them through to the next round. Um, As for this game, I think something that happened before the game that might have directly affected just the the way the U.S. came out uh, was the extremely rainy conditions uh, the I was in the van on the way to the stadium, and the streets just were a flood sometimes. Uh, the van that I was in, uh, you know, the, the exhaust started get, getting back up into the car because there was no place for it to go because half the car was submerged in water. Um, it's kind of miraculous that we made it here, um, and it's kind of miraculous that anybody made it here at all considering those were the conditions inside of town. Um, and... What's notable about that also is that it prevented a lot of the players, friends, and family from getting here. Uh, so right before the game, instead of focusing on the task at hand, they're worrying about their friends or their family or whoever came along with them on the trip to Brazil. Um, and I think that you know, Clint Dempsey suggested in his press conference that might have distracted the players a little bit and might have contributed to their slow start. However, after a really rough 20, 25 minutes where Germany had all the possession and all the chances, the U.S. kind of started to settle into themselves a little bit, even if they struggled in the final third to create attacking, uh, attacking opportunities. However, they can uh, look at it with a positive uh, viewpoint. They're going from a pretty tricky game, both in terms of actually getting to the stadium and also in terms of knowing what they want out of it. Uh, they didn't know quite going in whether you know a win would be best or a draw would be best. Now they're in the second round, and the job is simple. You have to win the game. Uh, so that simplifies things a lot for the players, allows them to concentrate just on the game and playing it and doing everything they can to win. And I think uh, for this group, that's, uh, that's probably for the best. You know, It's not the most experienced group, and uh, making things as simple as possible, uh, Jurgen Klinsmann said, is, is always going to be a more preferable situation. Uh, that's all for me for now. I got to go catch a flight. This is Alex Abno signing off from Brazil.
Okay, so the group stages are over. The knockout stages are here or about to be after a quick break on Friday. What an amazing opening stage of the tournament. I don't even know if we'll get to talk about anything else because I want to spend the whole time talking about Luis Suarez. David, were you watching when, when he bit Chiellini on the shoulder? Oh, I sure was. And for a moment, I think like a lot of folks, I went, that was a headbutt. <laughs> and then you, you know, you just knew, you just knew that he'd, uh, he'd had another little nip. Uh, I've, I've taken a lot of flack on Twitter for s- saying that I really like Luis Suarez and that I, I don't think that he's the Antichrist. I mean, like, of course he's not. I mean, is he someone who's got anger management issues? Yes. Is he someone who is not really in charge of himself a lot of the time? Yes. You know, does that make him the Antichrist? No. I also think there's a real debiting thing. I don't know whether you're picking this up, but there's a real cultural taboo issue around biting. And I've, you know, it's like, actually, what would I rather get a nip in the shoulder or would I, ra- you know, rather get a really painful, you know, drag of studs on my ankle and be put out for the next three games? I mean, I totally agree with you. I think the fact that Nigel de Jong is still playing in on, you know, in workplaces across Europe is, by which I mean stadiums, of course, is a very dangerous thing it's like you're putting hundreds of soccer players at risk every time he steps onto the you know every season that he plays and yet he's you know he hasn't been bad for anything like nine games for for taking people out of the knees or or doing anything else like that Uh, can can i say one thing real quick i think one thing that's interesting about the suarez thing though too is the fact that like when when you see like guys that you mentioned nigel de young guys like even pepe where something is initiated and then like there's a kick in the game or something like the the Suarez biting happens like off the ball when when it's just the, the first one the first one happened in in when he was at Ajax and the first one happened um, during like a melee like it was a, a melee yeah. yeah so there was like some aggression there but like the the Branislav Ivanovic one happened in the box like all of a sudden like all of a sudden Ivanovic is down and it's like what just happened and then this one kind of the same thing it's like wait did he just headbutt well, him or well, what happened you know when when he said that thing the the, the racist slur to Evra. I think one of the the things that people who are more sympathetic to Suarez, uh, you know, maybe apologists for Suarez were saying, was that you know he's not really a racist. He was doing it to get in his head. Look, I have no idea what was what Suarez was trying to do, uh, but okay, it strikes me as un un not premeditated, sort of in the moment. Like he just he's just like goes red in the brain for a second and bites someone. But maybe is it a tactic to, to throw the opponent off? Because it certainly works. That's what um, Ruvain Nisselroy said uh, immediately after the game. He said it's so it's so unfair because then he gets bit, nothing happens, and then you have to defend a corner, and it's like you just feel it's like unfair. It's is he like, bite well, me I just got Well, no, it's just like <laughs> Chiellini's mindset is that like, what the heck? Like I just got bit, and this guy's still on the field, and nothing has happened, and then right. they score the goal. You know, getting getting bit, get kind of like it would mess it messes with your head more than getting kind of clunked on the ankle. I mean, I think there's something here about you know human beings don't want to be eaten by other creatures, particularly other human beings, and there is that's just something about it, no? No, it's totally it's a taboo thing, which is I think you know the previous. The previous suspension, I believe I'm right in saying this, the previous longest suspension for an act committed during the World Cup was, uh, I forget who it was, David, you might remember. Uh, the, the dude who broke World someone's Cup. nose. Yeah, he, it was an elbow to the head in the 1994 World Cup, right? Um, yeah. This is longer, um, and yet the damage, the damages were less. Yeah, but it is number three. I mean, you know, this is the third... 
And I think that's kind of, that's part of the thinking here. Uh, and I think it's reasonable because in the end, you really like, you know, bless you, Luis Suarez. You bring me joy and pleasure in many ways, but you really, really got to stop biting people. This is not acceptable. I think it's like, it's fair enough. I don't know if you guys saw today, there was a, a stat on Twitter saying that since 2010, he's he's been, uh, he's missed 34 games because of, uh, because of these bans without actually getting a single red card, which is like, <laughs> that is amazing. Amazing. Like, that's a skill. <laughs> if only there weren't video cameras all over the place. Someone should tell them that these games are on TV and that there are literally 34 cameras or something like that in these FIFA World Cup stadiums and that he's not going to get away. He went down as though Chiellini's shoulder had fouled him in the mouth. I think yeah. that, was a, that was a great tweet that I saw. <laughs> I want to talk about CONCACAF. CONCACAF has, out of 16 teams left in this tournament, three of them, almost a quarter are from CONCACAF. That is absurd. It's crazy. Like, that, that, there's there's no way that should happen. Uh, and yet it, it has. Uh, Danny, Mexico shouldn't have even qualified for the World Cup. What is going on here? Yeah, so Mexico shouldn't have even qualified for the World Cup, probably, and they nearly won their group had they had, you know, uh, just a little bit better game against Brazil, which is nuts. And uh, Costa Rica winning, winning their group, a, a group that we definitely didn't see. I don't think any, I mean, apart from some Costa Ricans, probably didn't see many of them getting out of their group. Um, and then the U.S. even even almost winning their group, uh, you know, to an extent. But uh, it's great for soccer. It's great for soccer here. Um, it kind of shows. It kind of shows just how how strong Concacaf is as well, which is great because I think a lot of people when they when they look at U.S. qualifying at times, they think they kind of discount how difficult it is to actually get to the World Cup. And having Mexico, Costa Rica, and the U.S. all get out of their groups and into the next round has been great for us. Totally. And not only not only are almost a quarter of the teams from from CONCACAF, uh, a third, almost a third of the MLS players who started out in the World Cup are left in the, in, in the tournament. 14 out of 22. 10 for the U.S., 3 for Costa Rica, and Julio Cesar of Brazil, of course, who may be the first current MLS player to win the World Cup. That would be amazing. <laughs> uh, looking ahead, I think we all agree that Mexico had an easier draw in the group stage than the U.S., but I, I would say that Mexico has a, a harder uh, round of 16 opponent in the Netherlands than uh, than the U.S. does in Belgium. Yeah, uh, the Netherlands are obviously going to be very, very, very difficult team to beat, and they're they've shown already this tournament they've definitely got goals in them and and can score when they get things going. Um, the U.S. faced Belgium, which I think Belgium's a side that hasn't really k- kind of hit it up a notch really they they're a very good team individually and, and they're they're a very they can be a very good team as a team as well and we saw that last year when they beat us 4-2 uh the, the way they played that day was was very different from what we've seen at the world cup so far which uh and if you look at the results actually they're, they're scoring goals very late in the game as yep. well you know they won they they won all three games um, but all three go- all three games they scored late and uh, kind of had to figure it out uh, in-, in the second part of the second half of each game. So it- it- it's not it's not the the worst draw in the World Cup, but it won't be easy. I think. I think you're right. Can I just say on the can- on the Concacaf issue, how fantastic it is that Concacaf's moment of triumph cannot be enjoyed by either Jack Warner or Chuck Blazer. Righteous justice. <laughs> Let's just let's just dwell on that at the moment because it wouldn't be good if Jack Warner was crowing over this moment. So this is a good this is a good thing. 
Not only is Saturday the beginning of the knockout stages, it's also the beginning of Ramadan. That means practicing Muslims are expected to fast, meaning no food or water during all daylight hours during the month. Great for focusing on the spiritual side of life. Not so great for winning an elite sporting competition, maybe. Next, we'll talk to our friend Shireen Ahmed. She is a lot of things, but among them, she is a Muslim, a soccer player, and a soccer coach. And she will be telling us about the challenges faced by Muslim players in the soccer world. Shireen Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us on Dummy. Hi, George. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, I know that you are of Pakistani descent and you live in Canada. Neither of those countries are in the World Cup. Who are you going for this year? Well, as of this exact moment, I'm forced with Algeria, Iran being eliminated yesterday in Bosnia. So I'm going fully with Algeria. Now, Ramadan starts on Saturday. So first of all, can you give a very brief explanation of what the players will be expected to do differently now that Ramadan's starting and uh, how that might affect them in the tournament? Well, basically in the month of Ramadan from sunrise, which at this point is I think four in the morning, depending on where you are, until sunset, which can, you know, is around nine o'clock, 9 p.m. There's no ingestion of food or of water at all or intravenous drugs or anything. Let's just say if you needed an IV, you would be omitted from fasting. So the players won't be taking in anything. Now, before you begin the fast, most people either go to bed with a really big meal or they wake up to perform some prayers and they eat at that time. So if the players were playing a game, say, noonish or four, they probably would have been fasting for anywhere from eight to 12 hours at that point. So even like you come in for halftime and you're gassed and you need some liquids to replenish, they can't take on water. No, they can wash their face. They can rinse their mouth out a couple times, drench themselves in water. But no, they can't actually swallow any of it. No. Is this not a medical liability? I'm just curious about, you know, it would be a, such a tragedy to see a player collapse uh, on the field because heat stroke or, or just exhaustion. What sort of safeguards are in place for someone who's exerting themselves like this? Recently, there's been a lot of research into athletes and and players fasting and keeping in mind that this isn't the first time that athletes have ever performed at a high level. I don't know if you remember, but Hakeem Olajuwon used to play for the Houston Rockets during Ramadan in the NBA Finals, and he won his championship the year he was fasting. So, I mean, there's precedent for this and, and public precedent. Now, what it is, is in terms of medical, like I have a good friend that actually did her research PhD thesis from Marshall University on this exact thing in in physiology, and saying that the research suggests that energy intake or body mass change during Ramadan, and what happens is carbohydrate and protein metabolisms aren't significantly affected during that peak performance time. So the important thing is, is after you finish your match and after you're allowed to eat and drink again, to hydrate yourself sufficiently at that point. So the risk of dehydration actually runs, not, not heat stroke, dehydration, two different things, runs if you've gone for a lengthy period of time without replenishing fluid. Even though I come from a family with, you know, Iranian and, and Pakistani heritage. Uh, I've spent a lot more time around Catholics, and I know that during Lent, if someone slips up and has that piece of chocolate or or whatever, uh, they're sort of like, yeah, you know, no big deal. 
Is there a lot of variation in how seriously different Muslims take this period? And, and is there any chance that maybe the players are just maybe not abiding by these laws? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's also important to keep in mind that Muslims aren't a monolith. Like, they're coming from different countries around the world. The way that the Algeria team would approach it might be different than the way the Muslims from Bosnia or from Belgium or, you know, from South America would approach it. And there are different dispensations, sometimes different countries due to the traveling involved in the World Cup. Some, there's dispensations that you don't actually have to fast while you're traveling. Now, I know that the Ivory Coast had been eliminated, but both Yaya and Koloture had committed to fasting while they were playing. They publicly said that. So it, it depends on the player and their perspective uh, of whether they intend to, to continue. And their teams are well-versed in support and medical and physiological support and emotional and spiritual support. It, it depends on the player and depends how they approach it. I, I know you cited your friend's research. I understand that Okay, so I should say I don't really understand the body all that well <laughs> compared to like a physiologist. But I have to imagine that there's some disadvantage in not being able to take on water. I, I mean, I, just as a soccer player, you're a soccer player. What I'm saying is I'm not trying to question whether or not that's accurate because I haven't read it. I'm not sure. But I do wonder if there might be an advantage to a team whose players are doing something collectively for like a religious reason. Could there be an advantage to that where they maybe would perform better because they are sacrificing or something and they, they know that they're making some sort of collective sacrifice? And I think that's a really important question and I'm not sure of the different opinions of each squad. I know that on France, Karim Benzema, for example, he commits to fasting and although Frank Ribéry is not on the squad, he would as well. But collectively, like I'm not sure. It depends what each player's own position is on it. Like some might be, some might not be. But in terms of an advantage, I am a player and I do fast and I always fast when I'm playing. I mean, it's exhausting, but you're exhausting when you give 100% on the pitch anyway. And I've been really lucky. My games are in the evening, so quite often I'll take a couple dates and some water. And at halftime or when it's time, I will go to the sideline, I'll sub off for a minute and I'll get what I need and then I keep going. And it's also important to keep in mind this isn't the first time or the first occasion where these players have done it. For most of their adult lives probably, they've fasted and played and trained. Maybe not in tournaments as big as this. I know for Algeria it's the first time they've qualified for the knockout round. So this is a really big deal, but they're professional athletes. Like they're accustomed to doing this. And religion for Muslims is not something you sort of put in your pocket and walk about if you're observant. It's a part of your life and who you are and how you live. So they're pretty well versed in this. That was Shireen Ahmed. Her work has been featured on the Huffington Post and Policy Mike, and you can follow her website, Tales from a Hijabi Footballer, at footybedsheets.tumblr.com. Let's take another quick break, and we will be back with Tiki Talka. All right, we're almost out of time here, but before we go, let's do our Tiki Taka segment where we bring up our favorite things from the soccer world over the past few days. Danny, let's start with you. So this is non-World Cup related, but certainly soccer related, uh, and we're heading for France for this one, but a, a club team in France called Claremont Foot 63 hired a Portuguese woman to manage their team at the end of last season. They're and, in the lower leagues. Yeah, right? I think they're third, second or third division, exactly. Uh -huh. um, her name is Helena Costa. She's 36 years old, and she's been dubbed as uh, Mourinho in a skirt, actually. <laughs> um, That's an image. Yeah, exactly. So she, she was hired as this, as this club team to be their manager, and she I guess she reported to training on a Tuesday for her first day of training, and uh, abruptly resigned from the, from like the hours team. Hours later. Well. Hours later, exactly. And apparently what had happened was... Um, 
she'd emailed the club uh, kind of disgruntled about the fact that they'd gone behind her back and signed a bunch of players, arranged a bunch of friendlies, which are things that the manager sh- should be responsible for, especially uh, coming into your first season. Um, she, she's very unhappy. She actually emailed the technical director of the club multiple times throughout the week, and apparently the technical director emailed her back saying, you're tiring me with your messages. <laughs> so that, that's really put her off. So as, as fast as we've had the first female professional men's coach, uh, we, we've seemingly lost her as well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's pretty disrespectful. Very disrespectful. Um, David, how about you? I'm going to go with a beautiful thing, which was today um, the Ghanaian goalkeeper made a sensational save uh, from a Ronaldo header quite close. And the header was so strong, it threw him back over the line and he sort of lay crumpled on the ground. And then he looked up just for a moment and saw that the coast was clear and the ball had been cleared. And he leapt to his feet and punched the air with pleasure. And, um, yeah, that was just a very, very sweet little moment. Probably had so much power because of a thunderbolt uh, that's been shaved into the side of Ronaldo's head. Whether that's uh, to commemorate a a scar from a, a cancer patient or not. I think that we can all agree that that gives you extra power when you're heading the ball. <laughs> my my tiki talk is the Ann Coulter piece that has been making the rounds on the internet today. She is the queen of trolling everyone, um, just like a professional troll, just a terrible. I mean, a terrible person. Let's just let's just put it out there. Uh, and what I really enjoyed, and I don't want anybody to go and read this because every time someone clicks on it, she like, there's like this little cha-ching sound that probably she has in an app or something. And it just puts money in her pocket. But I do want to say that, uh, we're, we're constantly here in the U S talking about, Oh, has soccer made it? Oh, you know, what's the status of, of, of the game here. And I've been, I've been doing a couple, yeah, I've been doing some appearances on TV and radio. It seems like, you know, I did one and then it sort of snowballs and people are like, oh, let's get that guy. And they all want to ask me the same thing. It's like, hey, the U.S. doesn't really like soccer. So what's going on here? And I I always tell them the same thing. It's in a country of 300 million people, a subculture is, is pretty can be pretty giant. And, you know, there are tens of millions of soccer fans living in this country. You know, if Ann Coulter is if soccer's on her radar and she is hating on it, uh, that's okay with me. I don't want her to start liking it. Then I'll have to find something else to do because I don't want to be in her club. Uh, but I, I just wanted to call her out and say thank you for, for doing what you do about soccer. It just really validates. I, I just feel personally validated by that. It's it's a nice feeling. David, I know you had some thoughts on that. Do you, do you want to add anything? Oh, man. I'm sharpening my pen. I haven't read it, but I really I can't wait to see... Uh, what she has to say, I suspect, to be honest, you know, it's not new for um, far-right characters and uh, polemicists in uh, in America to decry soccer. I mean, if you look back to the 94 World Cup and even more recently, and not just in uh, on Fox News, there's a lot of people, you know, going down the un-American, unmanly line. And in that respect, I don't want to give her too much kind of oxygen because we've been... We've been here before, but I sense actually a bit of panic in their voices, and I like to hear panic in those guys' voices. Yeah, the last thing I want to say about this is uh, I, I tweeted something about it earlier, and, and my friend Ishan Tharoor, who's a writer for the Washington Post, got back to me on, on Twitter, and he's, he said something, and he, he, he linked to a piece he had written uh, that he actually just published this morning about why 
soccer seems to panic the the right in this country. And I thought he made a really interesting point that I had not actually considered yet. And I want to uh, I want to just read this this one line from his piece. He, he writes that. The U.S. team may not be an elite force, but it has time, resources, and demographics on its side. And while it may never be the swaggering American hegemon of the 20th century, it sure looks like something of an idealized American 21st century, industrious, cosmopolitan, and more aware of its limitations on the global stage. And I thought that was a really interesting insight into the psyche of the American right and all the things that sort of freak them out, the decline of the U.S., uh, the fact that we may have to share or ask permission to do things uh, or may not be the best at something. Um, and and those are things that are represented by the U.S. And, and the U.S. soccer team does struggle and doesn't always get its way, very famously doesn't always get its way. And and I, I, I think that's one of the reasons that uh, an, a soccer stadium is one of the few places that I'm okay chanting USA, USA, because we are the underdogs in this respect. And I think that that's a really great thing to keep in mind. So I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah, no, I think, you know, to me, my time in, uh, in the U.S., particularly amongst the students that I've taught, you know, for a lot of young Americans of all ethnicities, if you want to check the rest of the world out, if you want to have a kind of cosmopolitan uh, attitude to this planet, if you want to engage and discover the rest of the world, then... Man, soccer's just, it's the way. And, um, and this, you know, the US at the World Cup, uh, seems to be just delivering on that promise because it's not just fabulous entertainment and brilliant drama. Um, I see a kind of unruly, unplanned, spontaneous little reimagining of what it means to be American in the 21st century. And how great that it's the football stadium that the play—that that's the crucible in which that can happen. Totally, well said. I think that does it for this episode of Dummy. I want to thank our guest Shireen Ahmed for her great insight on Ramadan and the Muslim faith in soccer. Thanks also to our esteemed panelists David Goldblatt and Danny Carbassian for joining us. Alexander Avnos for sharing his crazy journey with the U.S. men's national team all summer. Uh, thanks to Slate, and particularly the guys over at Hang Up and Listen, Josh Levine, Mike Volo, and Andy Bowers for having us on board for the tournament. Most of all, we want to thank you. If you like what you hear, make sure you tune in for our next episode Tuesday, and if you haven't followed us on Twitter, you should. We're at What a Howler. The Howler Singers are led by Lindsay Elliott. They are members of the choral ensemble Ghost Light, and they made our theme tune. All the rest of the music is by Brian Kim. This podcast was produced by Matthew Nelson with help from Ryan Katniss, Kira Deppenbrock, and Malena Barajas. My name is George Kareji, and I'll be back on Tuesday along with the rest of these dummies. Until then, happy World Cup. That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.